This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's now time for Activate, a show brought to you by Amnesty International. No my hi my and welcome to another edition of Activate. Call Catherine Butchard a ho, and here we are again, the month of February, another edition where we talk to people around the world and in New Zealand about human rights issues. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge what's going on in the North Island. So much devastation, uh, and the interview that we have today talks a little bit about that and is connected to basically how. Climate change is making these episodes worse. So I'm not sure if any listeners in the North Island will be able to be hearing this, but um, we acknowledge the devastation and hopefully things will improve for you soon. We have an interesting show for you today. We are interviewing someone called Robin Campbell, and he is the Chief of Staff for the Greens Party Aotearoa. We also have our normal contributions from Greg. He is updating us about a human rights story in Moscow via the BBC. And we have a good news story from Kerry. Yes. Robin Campbell is the Chief of Staff for James Shaw and Marama Davidson, co-leaders of the Green Party of Aotearoa New Zealand and ministers in the Labour-led government. After beginning his career as a policy advisor in the public sector, Robin shifted to working for the Green Party in Parliament in early 2015. He has held several roles for the Greens in government and opposition, including political and media advisor, policy director and ministerial advisor. Robin has an MA in political studies from the University of Auckland. His thesis explored the ways international climate change negotiations are reported in mainstream media. Robin is Pakeha and lives in Wellington. This interview covers his personal views, not necessarily the views of his employers. Good evening, Robin. Thank you very much for joining us um, and giving up your time to tell us all these interesting things. What I wanted to start with was what previous jobs or interests led you to the work you're now doing, Chief of Staff for the Greens? Oh, kia ora, Catherine. Um, it's nice to be here and talk with you. Um, I've sort of, I've always had an interest in uh, politics and um, in sort of environmental politics as well. Um, when I was at university, uh, I got quite uh, interested in, in climate change issues after I graduated, I entered the public service in Wellington in a, in a policy role. And that was really interesting and in sort of seeing how government works from from that side. Uh, but the longer I spent working in a, a public sector department, the more I sort of kind of wanted to be across the road um, in, in Parliament or in the Beehive. And I had, um, I suppose, the the work I was doing, I was lucky, I was in a, a small team um, working on um, telecommunications policy at the time and I remember going to um, the occasional meeting with the minister at the time and uh, sitting there in those meetings and uh, watching and listening to her political advisor 
uh, ask questions and and about the work that we were doing and thinking, I think like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to do that job. That that's um, how my brain works, and that's that's what I want to be doing all day. So uh, that sort of crystallised it for me. I got more and more involved in the in the Green Party as a volunteer, um, and then. After the 2014 election, there were a few vacancies and I applied and was lucky enough to get one um, and I've been here ever since. Excellent. What a nice feeling to have that confidence in in what you wanted to do. Yeah, I think I'm quite – I know I'm lucky that, um, you know, I identified something um, and went, that's it for me, and then worked at it and, uh, and got there. Yeah, I'm hazarding a guess that unless any of our listeners have worked in Parliament themselves, it's hard to get a grasp on your day-to-day work. Maybe our listeners have watched The West Wing or House of Cards, something like that. (laughs) I don't know if that's accurate. And I read in a North and South article last year that Jacinda Ardern's chief of staff was described as the most powerful non-elected political figure in the country. Do you have any comments to make or can you enlighten us on your day-to-day work? Uh, Yes, absolutely. Um, I'd start off by saying that the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff is um, a much more powerful position than (laughs) than Chief of Staff for a small party outside of Cabinet. Sure. Um, But... I mean, for me, my job is as a sort of a trusted advisor to the, to the co-leaders of the Green Party, working with them on problem solving, finding a way through, uh, helping them set our political strategy and working with our caucus to do that, and then uh, keeping people to it, um, you know, working with our staff team and with our MPs to, to really um, keep us on track with what we're trying to achieve and how we're trying to achieve it. I think day to day also I'm often taking the long view and whether that's thinking about what's happening next week or next month or next year, you know, we have a really great team um, who are, because of the nature of politics, quite focused on the day to day. Mm. Um, And so I get um, the chance to take a step back from that sometimes. And while they're doing what needs to be done today, I'm thinking about what what comes next. Mm. I think, um, you know, politicians are elected to make decisions and, and to lead. But it's our job as staff to support that, um, help them carry that out, identify the risks and opportunities, you know, um, um, work with them and, uh, on, on those things. So, you know, we might be helping an MP prepare for a, a negotiation with another party, sitting in that room in that meeting, reading the room, taking notes, helping them figure out next steps and, you know, who do we need to talk to, who do we need to get on side to make something happen. Um, and then how do we communicate all that to the public? Uh, I think that's really important for politics and democracy is not just to be focused on what's happening in these closed door rooms, but to be, um, you know, talking with the people who elected the politicians about, you know, this is what you elected us to do and, and this is how we're trying to do it and, and, and have that communication there. Yeah, I can see that. Never think- lose sight of the um, people that voted you in. I think that's that's right too, and um, and not just the people who voted you in, but everyone else as well. You know, um, Parliament Absolutely. needs to represent the whole country, um, and there's a range of views, um, you know, in the public, and and you've got to be mindful of that. I think also you um, you've got to have a sense of humour, right? It's um, <laughs> it can be hard work, but I, I think it's less. You, you mentioned West Wing and, and the House of Cards. It's it's more, sometimes more like Veep or, or the thick of it. Um, you've you've got to have a sense of humour at work. I'm very, I'm very glad to hear that. 
You've also worked as James Shaw's advisor, and as you just outlined, you are a trusted advisor to um, both the co-leaders now anyway. The core of that advisor work, I gather, is to give political advice to the minister, so Minister for Climate Change. Um, and that advice presumably has to be consistent with the objectives of the government. What I'm interested in is is this the coalition government. So given that James mm-hmm. Shaw is the Greens co-leader, how does that play out in practice? Is there any tensions there or it's simply a coalition government in action, lots of compromise? Also, what would you say to any supporters of the Greens who are dissatisfied by the compromises? I know that James Shaw last year, obviously, there was the um, tension within his own party, uh, whether he was still to be co-leader. Um, some people mm. said that he sold out. Do you have any comments to make about that? Um, I mean, this is the the really interesting challenge, right? Um, it's And it's not just about compromise, but finding common ground. Um, mm. that's, that's the way the cards were dealt at the election. That's what people voted for. They voted for a, a very large Labour Party with a relationship with the Greens. Um, And so it's our job to find that common ground and and look for what we can achieve together with the government um, and be honest about when we can't, when we disagree. And and that's, you you see that from from James and from other Green politicians, being really honest in public about, look, this is is what we've agreed to do. um, And this is where we would have gone. You know, you you might hear them say the phrase further and faster. but um, you know, this is where we're at, and we and we believe it's a good, it, it's the best we can get. Um, so it's not just about the government's objectives; it's also about the party's objectives, and that's why people voted for us. So finding a way to make the party's objectives um, influence the government's objectives. I think, um, in terms of selling out, um, I've always believe that the Green Party in, in Parliament and our, our MPs and Ministers it is one part of a much broader um, Green movement, environmental movement, movement for social justice, movement for honouring totality, move, uh, movement for what we think you know, a, better, a better Aotearoa. And we're that little part in Parliament, right? But there's there's the movement outside of Parliament, and that's where a lot of the momentum comes from. That's where the often the new ideas come from. Um, you don't make change in Parliament unless there is pressure and momentum in the public and outside of Parliament as well. Mm-hmm. So, so we're here, you know, trying to make change within the system, um, within the, the parliamentary democracy, um, which is a very particular kind of, of um, system. Um, and we're working within that to try and make change while trying to change the system itself um, and make it more representative, make it fairer, make it more consensus-based, make it more deliberative. Okay. I want to move now to the issue of lobbying. We all know that lobbying by powerful polluting companies can be a danger to our democratic system and really inhibit sensible climate change policy. For example, in New Zealand, the North Island Pipe Network, First Gas, they pushed back hard on the Climate Change Commission recommendation that new houses should be all electric from 2025. And some say this led to the government leaving the policy out of its first ever emissions reduction plan. Also at COP27, oil and gas lobbyists worked to protect their interests, the fossil fuel industry. For some, it feels like big corporations are really in charge. Can you make any observations or comments about this large issue? 
Yeah, um, Catherine, I won't comment on a, any specific example directly, sure. but um, you know, our economic system uh, has some very powerful status quo interests. Um, money is very powerful, um, and there are people and companies who uh, have a vested interest in continuing the status quo and not uh, not changing from some of the ways, particularly. Um, in, you know, in which we have built an economy that runs on fossil fuels. Um, that is what has enabled the fossil fuels have enabled the world to develop in the way it has over the last 150, 200 years. Um, and so those are very entrenched interests. And But it is very, very clear uh, that it's past time to change that. Mm. Um, we cannot continue on the path we're on. Uh, it, it's unsustainable in the truest sense of the word. Um, and so making that change is hard and tough and, and involves difficult decisions. But there are options out there, right? Um, you know, clean energy technologies exist. We know what we can do to reduce our impact on the climate and on the natural world that sustains us as a human civilization. Um, but it takes uh, political courage and it takes um, people out there in the public and it takes politicians inside not just New Zealand's parliament but you know um, parliaments and governments around the world to stand up against those vested interests and say it's time to change. Mm. And that leads me to my next question which I'm personally really interested in is communication basically. So how we communicate about climate change Communication is how we generate meaningful action for people and give politicians the courage to make the changes necessary. Given the situation is urgent, what's the best way to get politicians and people to act? I wonder if it's a heady mix of psychology and science and everything in between. Yes, I think it is. I mean, it's something I'm really interested in too and, and think about a lot. And um, back when I was at, at university, my um, master's thesis looks at you know, communicating climate change. And I think it's important to acknowledge the, um, the way things have shifted in the past 5, 10, 15 years um, from, you know, every, every story or, you know, media um, story about climate change talking about two sides and is it real and is mm -hmm. there scientific consensus? Um, and we called that, or it was called at the time, a balance as bias um, because the science has been crystal clear for basically my entire life. Um, 1988 was when, you know, Congress in the US heard um, scientists saying there is consensus um, around this issue. Um, and over time, you don't get you don't get that anymore. You don't mm. get people saying this isn't happening. Um, this isn't true. It's sunspots or it's, um, you know, natural variation that so, so that has shifted. Um, and I think something else that has shifted is uh, climate change very much feels in, in the here and now. And mm. I think it's really important to acknowledge the, the human cost of, of recent extreme weather events, right? Those, those people in those communities who've had their lives tipped upside down in, in Tarafati and in Northland and Auckland and the Hawke's Bay and the Wairarapa. Upper. Um, just over the last few weeks, yes. this is not someone else's problem anymore. This mm. is this is our problem. This is what we're living in. Um, but in in saying that, it's hope, not fear, that creates change, right? Um, right. You know, the, the 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 
climate change is on our doorstep and that, that can be very, very scary. But the way that we can bring people along with us and, and, and make change collectively and as a community is, is by talking about what we value about each other and what we value about our lives um, and, and, and the changes that we can make, the choices that we can make that um, will create more resilient, stronger communities with, with less impact on the environment. And the role, for, the role for government there is to put the system in place where people can do that. You know, you can't go out there and say, oh, you're very bad because you don't recycle or you need to buy an electric car if, you, if an electric car is just so much more expensive. Mm. Um, that's the role for policymakers to create the frameworks. Sorry, listeners, we experienced some technical difficulties there given a internet issue with Plains FM out of their normal premises. So I apologise for that. Um, we do have the rest of his interview, though. So rest assured, you will hear more from Robin Campbell in a later Activate show. <laughs> Hi, this is Kerry recording good news for you this February 2023. We have some good news from Hong Kong this uh, month, actually dating back to uh, towards the end of last year. A veteran radio host has been released from prison, Edmund Wan, who was sentenced to 32 months imprisonment under sedition and money laundering charges for criticising the authorities and fundraising for young people who took part in the Hong Kong 2019 protest movement, was released on 18th of November 2022. He'd been held for over 19 months prior to his sentencing, which he was sentenced in October. So, uh, yes, a good sort of 20 or so months being held, but released earlier than his 32-month sentence. And that's you know, is good news. Sadly, the money that he raised uh, for those Hong Kong protesters had to be given to the government um, as part of his plea deal. But uh, fortunately, he has his freedom, which obviously is far more important. Um, he is a veteran internet radio host and public affairs commentator. And prior to his arrest, he was the host of four shows on a local independent online radio station in Hong Kong. He also commented on current affairs on social media platforms and uh, a paid membership platform that he, he ran. Other than making comments critical of the Hong Kong and Chinese central authorities, he started a fundraiser for sponsoring the education of Hong Kong youths in Taiwan in February 2020. These youths had fled the city for Taiwan as the Hong Kong government arrested tens of thousands of young people who took part in those 2019 protests. Edmund Wan uh, is back now with his friends and family um, who picked him up on the day of his release. According to his friends, he is physically and mentally well and he would like to thank everyone for supporting him during his imprisonment. If you want to find out more about uh, current actions you can take to help achieve similar outcomes, hopefully in, in many of the circumstances people find themselves in around the world, then please go to amnesty.co.nz. Thank you and we'll be in touch with you next month with more good news. Kia ora everyone, this is Greg here from the Activate team. For this month's uh, February show 2023, for our human rights in the news, I just wanted to pick up on a story that came from the end of near the end of last month, around 25th, 26th of January. Amnesty International um, picked up on this as well and reported on it 
on the website amnesty.org so you can also look at more information uh, this information comes from bbc news however from the 25th of january this is about moscow moscow helsinki group which is the russian's oldest human rights organization who've been told to close the reporting is from the bbc as i said from Catherine armstrong uh, so basically a court in Russia has ordered the country's oldest human rights organization to be closed down. The Moscow Helsinki Group, MHG, was founded in 1976 and reports annually on the human rights situation in Russia. However, the authorities in Russia have now said it does not have the correct registration. Uh, this is the latest in a series of closures targeting rights and opposition, uh, opposition groups across Russia. The ruling comes after the Justice Ministry filed a lawsuit seeking to liquidate the group in December 2022, arguing that it was only registered to defend human rights in Moscow, not other parts of the country. That's despite the MHG having always worked with a wider scope. The group called the measure disproportionate at the time and said it would continue to function regardless of the wishes of the authorities. Uh, in a statement, MHD reported that its co-chair told the judge and the Justice Ministry representatives that they were committing a great sin by closing it down. You're destroying the human rights movement, you're destroying it, said Valery Borshov. The liquidation of the group is a serious blow to the human rights movement not only in Russia but also the world. The lawsuit was based on the Justice Ministry's ad hoc inspections of the MHG, which the group argued were illegal. It has said it will appeal to the decision. Uh, it's not the first time the MHD has been forced to cease its operations. It lasted only months after its launch in the 1970s, before the government jailed or forced practically all its members into exile. It was set up by a group of well-known Soviet dissidents and named after the Helsinki Accords, a wide-ranging international agreement signed by the USSR, which defended human rights and fundamental freedoms. The group was revived back in the early 1990s after the collapse of the Soviet Union. MHG has likened its treatment by the Russian authorities to that suffered by Memorial, another prominent human rights group which was shut down in 2021. Last year, Moscow, Moscow courts liquidated several other rights groups, including the Journalists and Media Workers Union. International human rights organisations have heavily criticised the Russian government for what they claim is a nationwide crackdown on independent journalism and dissenting voices that has intensified since its invasion of Ukraine. That includes top opposition figures, the majority of whom are now either in prison or exiled. The US-based charity the Human Rights Foundation has condemned Russia's decision to shut down MHG. This is yet another example of the Kremlin's campaign to silence opposition against the war in Ukraine, it tweeted. The Vice President of the European Commission, the European Union's executive arm, has echoed these sentiments. Joseph Brow said on Twitter, The Kremlin is extending its aggression in Ukraine into political repression at home, silencing human rights defenders, suppressing civil society and voices who are rejecting authoritarianism and war. So if you'd like more information about um, the situation with MHG, please do check the uh, Amnesty International international website, amnesty.org, and we'll continue to keep a watching brief on the situation in Russia. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to another edition of Activate. I hope you enjoyed our interview. I thought he was fantastic, and I hope it's given you food for thought, especially his last two matters. One, keep fossil fuels in the ground, and two, thinking about nutrition, we are what we eat, and the food chain, which is really fascinating stuff. 
Thank you to Greg and Kerry for your contributions. A big thank you to Charlie here in the studio for working through these techy difficulties to give you a bit of background. Poor Plains FM, they are out of their normal premises for earthquake strengthening, so that is a good thing, but they are having to deal with a new a new spot, shall we say. So all I urge you to do now, please, is go to the Amnesty International Aotearoa website, use your freedom and sign a petition, write a letter. You'll see that there's a good post up there about Saudi Arabia sponsors Women's World Cup being held in Aotearoa. This is major. I find it fascinating and I really um, urge you to go and take a look. Saudi Arabia, a country that denies basic human rights to women and girls, will be sponsoring the historic 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup in Aotearoa this year. There's a petition there. Go and have a look and please do sign. Matiwa, harera. See you next time. I want you to get together.